Hi, welcome to this podcast, You Play Rugby, by Leeds Uni Women's Rugby Union Club. Um, I'm Maddie Bevington, I'm club secretary, and I'm here with James Woodward, who's one of our coaching scholars this year. Uh, This podcast will be talking about the biomechanical and physiological differences between men and women in rugby, um, and what possible discussions this could bring up. Um, So James, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, so I've just completed my undergraduate degree in sports science here at Leeds University. And coaching has been one of the main focuses for me throughout my university degree. Uh, I've been a coach for quite some time, coaching at school when I used to coach between the ages of 8 to 12 and also helping out with the 15, 16 year olds. Um, and I've also been coaching for the last two years here at the university level. I've coached for clubs at West Park, obviously Lou Ruff. I also coached at Leeds University Women's Medics and Dentists. And I've had some experience with the county setup uh, with Yorkshire. So this episode we're going to be leading on from the last episode where Joy talked about um, ACL and concussion rates um, in women's rugby players. Uh, just a disclaimer, n- neither me nor James are qualified doctors or physios. This is just a finding from different studies. Um, so, you know, it's just a discussion about the implications for women's rugby. Um, so I'll start off talking about how ACL injury rates are much higher in women's rugby players than men's. James, do you want to explain this? So the ACL injury in, in females is, is something that's typically considered to be a lot more prevalent and a much higher risk. So in some studies, such as that by Hewitt et al. 2016, it was reported that it could be between two to ten times higher incident rate of ACL injuries in contact and non-contact sports in females compared to males. Looking a bit further, this study also looked at how much it costs on average at the university level in the States. Um for, for female athletics, for example, and it's roughly $650 million a year. So based on this, I mean, sorting out and understanding exactly why ACL injuries happen in women and how we can reduce this higher risk has got to be of paramount importance. Not only does it cost a lot, but looking at pain and, and complications after the injury, Hewitt et al. roughly suggests that it some people can can still experience symptoms for up to 20 years after the injury. Um, and this is something that uh, is not very well understood at the moment. No one really knows exactly why the problems may persist. But it looks like it stems from similar sort of reasons why the injury might happen. So looking at why the ACL injury might be more prevalent in females could be to do to something called valgus at, at the knee which is uh, Cross Halgatal in 2006, um, where they kind of talk about how there's uh, the way that the female anatomy around the hips and the knee is based, the angle, which is called the Q angle, um, is, is significantly different to the extent that in every step or in the heel strike phase, as it's called in biomechanics, there's a greater rotation around the knee, a greater sort of pivot-like motion, uh, which causes a lot more strain around the knee ligaments um, between women and males. And some studies even suggest that this can happen more or less within 100 milliseconds uh, of contact with the ground. Not only this, but as Joy mentioned earlier, there are some hormonal differences. Uh, so post-puberty, females tend to exhibit a greater uh, variation in the displacement of the trunk, of hip flexion 
and usually have a greater quadriceps activation during the landing, but a reduced hamstring activation compared to males. And this done in, and again in the study by Hewitt et al. 2016, where they sort of suggest that during the follicular stage and during ovulation, the joints actually may be more lax, which could lead to a greater risk of knee ligament damage because of a greater range of motion around the joint. But again, it's important to understand that research into ACL injuries in women, whilst is is, is generally quite well documented now, uh, it's only really recent studies that have looked at this um, specifically to do with the hormonal control of um, of ACL injuries. And this is something that uh, obviously needs a lot more research done in to, to properly understand. It also looks like one of the main areas that we generally accept now in biomechanics is that it could be due to an imbalance in the quadriceps versus the hamstring strength. Typically, women tend to have a greater quadriceps strength as opposed to hamstring strength, which puts a lot more strain on the knee ligaments. Um, So considering these implications, what sorts of preventative measures would you recommend? So whilst a lot of studies have looked at how ACL injuries might happen, there's a fairly limited number of studies that look into how we can prevent them. And I think at the moment, the main focus is understanding exactly how they might happen and how we can try and target these areas. So, for example, if we're looking at this quadriceps versus hamstring strength, one might suggest looking at trying to balance out and improve the hamstring versus quadriceps deficit. Others might be learning to have better control in the contact phase. So that's landing, for example, from a, either from a foot strike or in a jump or in a sprint, looking to try and understand how we can have greater control around the knee and have better that better motor control of the joint might help reduce the incidence of these injuries. I think overall it's about improving the understanding of how they might happen and then taking the steps. At the moment, it's, it's better to know that than to try and um, either put padding or different types of support structures, like braces, things like that. I think once we understand more how it happens and how we can, in, if anything, reduce the rate of it by improving on a muscular level where the control is, then hopefully the deficit between males and females or that great disparity uh, should improve. Okay, so it's definitely important to consider hamstring exercises in your workout routines and not just focusing too heavily on quads, which I feel like a lot of, um, well, me in particular, and I know a lot of other women do. Um, So we'll also talk about how women rugby players have a higher rate of concussion, um, which often have more severe symptoms and longer recovery rates. Shall we explain three possible theories? Um, James, would you like to talk about how this is concerning for women rugby players? So... Yeah, concussion is is one of the the big markers of of injury in rugby for me anyway. Considering I've been in and out of the sport because of them, um, I think it's something that often is not really understood well enough to be able to really understand how severe they really can be. Um, what we tend to call concussions in in biomechanics is a, is what's called an MTBI or a mild traumatic brain injury. And in fact, every impact to the head is classed under a different severity of TBI or, or traumatic brain injury. Um, so it's better to look at them from that approach than, than specifically what, what a concussion is. Um, in a study by Stein in 2007, looking into the sex differences in brain damage and the recovery of function, looked at 
how often females tend to be left out of studies because of worries of side effects on drugs and or treatments that, and the side effects that these can have on fertility and different hormone cycling. Um, and it's difficult because some studies like that by Cahill in 2006 have said that there's loads of sex influences on TBI, but there's a lot of studies as well, such as that by, by Ryder and Abdu in 2004, that actually seem to claim the opposite. Some studies into the female monkey brain, uh, La Cruz, Italian in 2001 suggested that actually the time in the menstrual cycle can definitely impact on neurological performance. But again, the general approach that most studies have is, is that it always finishes with the three same three words, more research needed. Stuart Italian in 2016 looked at what a concussion really is and what the differences are uh, between gender and found that, well, generally what is assumed of any head injury is that it's a concussion and players will always argue till they're blue in the face that they don't feel concussed and therefore why should they be taken off the pitch and this is something that definitely as a coach that we have to really look out for because it's it's a very hard decision to make but the reality is that whilst not every head impact or traumatic brain injury can result in a concussion there are other conditions that can develop and these are less heard of but they are equally if not more serious and examples of this is CTE, uh, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, and second impact syndrome. So second impact syndrome, let's focus on that one first, is, uh, is any subsequent impact to the head following an initial impact. Um, this could be in a match, or it could be within seven weeks of, of the injury. Uh, and this was done in a study by Bay and Ostick in 2009, who found that not only does the mortality double, uh, which is also supported in, in studies by World Rugby, um, but some patients, usually young athletes, can tend to die within minutes. Again, there's a lot of uh, a lot of heavy stuff here, but things like CTE, so chronic traumatic encephalopathy, this is actually neurodegen- neurodegenerative disease that occurs as a result of repeated traumatic brain injuries. And it's a gradual disease, impacts psychiatric and behavioural components. Um, again, this was looked at by Stuart Town 2016. And it's something that's relatively understudied. The problem with this condition is that it's not something that can be very easily diagnosed until death. Um, but it has been dubbed in the past as something called punch-drunk syndrome. So what the punch-drunk syndrome is, is it's basically, again, it's that sluggish-type behaviour it's all the similar symptoms that concussion has. This is why it's really difficult to discern the differences between all the different types of, of traumatic brain injuries. Um, and it makes it particularly difficult, again, as a coach or as a doctor, trying to advise the best kind of response. A lot of this research, again, is also only done in males. So there's not really a female comparison that can be made, um, especially long term, to understand what, what the impacts and the effects are. Uh, which is something that's frustrating, definitely, as a, as a women's rugby coach. It doesn't really give us a lot of guidance. But to be clear for everybody, you know, you don't have to have had a... You don't have to have been knocked out, for example, for a concussion to occur. A, a knockout, according to World Rugby, only occurs in between 17 to 20% of all actual concussive episodes. So it's something to be aware of. Um if we really want to go into the specifics in, in terms of the biomechanics of, of how these concussions occur, this is where it gets slightly more complicated. And 
it suggests that a, a mild traumatic brain injury, which could be the concussion or could be any severe head injury, um, is likely to occur more based on rotational acceleration of the brain relative to the skull. So what that means is during impact, it's more about how your head then acts after the impact that really decides the extent of the damage that this this injury will will have. So whilst World Rugby have recently stated that 60% of concussions tend to occur to the tackler, it might also be possible that more concussions tend to happen to those being tackled. Now, whilst this isn't something that is typical in men's rugby, as discussed by Joy in the previous podcast, due to different structures around the neck and different neurological differences, in women's rugby, it may be that because of that lack of control around the neck in terms of the neck strength, there's an extra whiplash effect that generates even more acceleration, which could increase incidence and risk of concussion. In a study by Zhang et al. 2004, they actually identified probable thresholds of speeds of acceleration of the brain and the skull, um, which could estimate up to about 80% likelihood of concussions. But this is hard to identify without GPS-type equipment, which is not really readily available at the university level. Um, and again, you know, the, the neck has played some role in resisting some of the, the extra rotation that can happen um, of, of, of the skull. But if the female neck is weaker, then theoretically, this protective effect of the neck may be a lot less in, in women than in men. Looking more specifically again, as Joy's mentioned about the hormones, it's difficult really to, to draw a clear conclusion whether women are hormonally more likely or not to receive concussion from a, from a head injury. Some studies go as far as to say that depending on the, where you are in your cycle, high levels of progesterone may actually protect you from a, a traumatic brain injury, whereas other studies tend to suggest opposite. Um, and if you want more research or more details in that, you can look at a study by Chandran et al. in 2017 or Ma et al. in 2019. Wow, yeah, I think... If anything, that shows that uh, there's definitely more work to be done in terms of really monitoring women and the concussions and everything that can occur, um, especially to do with the menstrual cycle. Um, I think it's also really interesting to consider how longer recovery times and more severe symptoms can affect women's rugby in particular. So if you think about it, with only 9% of Britain's rugby players being women, when we have higher rates of concussion and have longer recovery times that really affects the amount of players we have for a club or within a league at any one time so um, that can really affect the longevity of the club if you know you have several players out for longer and um, more regularly have severely injured players um, so that might be something that uh, it would be interesting to look into when it comes to developing as obviously we're trying to really put progression into women's rugby and really build it up over the next couple of decades um so hopefully <laughs> more research could be done there to really help progress the sport and also help to make sure that women aren't um, suffering from higher rates um so when it comes to looking in studies about concussion in women rugby players do you want to talk about the stuff that's going on now with swansea 
So in Swansea at the moment, Dr. Liz Williams, a professor there, is running a fantastic research program looking at women's rugby and concussion, where she's using specialised mouth guards with the GPS in them to be able to measure live the impact suffered by the players during the game. So what this allows her to see in real time is what's happening to the players during a match. And this is something that's been extrapolated from work with the Ospreys, where they've been using the same type of mouth guards. So it really is a fantastic research area because it pioneers a shift towards an understanding of the differences between male and female concussive episodes and rates within the sport. I think it's important also to understand how these GPS mouth guards work. And what they do is every sort of GPS mouth guard contains an accelerometer and a gyrometer that measures the acceleration of the head, that measures the displacement of the head. It also measures the the impact in forces uh, around the head during each impact. And it allows then to, to understand as the game is happening live from a medic perspective, from a coaching perspective, to be able to make a better decision about when we need to remove a player or when a player may have suffered a traumatic brain injury. To paraphrase a quote by Dr. Williams, she said it's more about understanding that women's rugby should be coached and played as women's rugby, not as rugby for small men, and that our current guidelines and preventative measures are more tailored towards men and are not specific enough to women. And I think as the female game is becoming more and more popular, better, more detailed understanding of this specifically, not only how the concussion happens, but its long-term effects, such as by using these impacts and these GPS mouthguards to, to map a model of the female brain during impact and to help improve the RFU guidelines on women's rugby and concussion is just so important. It's a step in the right direction towards understanding how the game has different demands both physically and mentally on the different genders and to understand how we can make it a better and safer environment for everyone that's involved. Yeah I think that shows some really interesting implications and I think that could be really beneficial for the sport. Uh, I think it's really interesting now to see how uh, women's sport clubs are really adapting to this new research so with Chelsea Women's Football Club and how they're slowly starting to adapt trainings to their players menstrual cycles and um, Leeds Beckett are currently doing a study on um, the menstrual cycle with uh, women rugby players and I think all of this shows that while there has been a reluctance in the past to do studies with women due to worries about how it'll affect their hormones and how it'll affect their cycle if anything there needs to be more studies to do with this because most women have periods and therefore half nearly half the population are having um rising and falls in hormones and so these things do need to be considered and men aren't the baseline because you know we've got the population is half men and half women and I think hopefully science and more studies are waking up to the idea that um, women aren't miniature men and that there are implications in thinking of them like that. Um, I think it could be really interesting to consider uh, how if we consider the women's game now to be completely separate to the men's, um, if we think about the biomechanical and physiological differences and whether or not we should start creating more guidelines and rules that um, are more useful to women. Um, so particularly at grassroots, most 
women aren't going to have physios um, and coaches that will be able to tailor uh, training to their menstrual cycles and all this stuff. And so then I think it's important to um, consider research in the years to come and how that should shape women's rugby because if women aren't the same as men, and I think we know that they're not, even though we have you know also the same capabilities and this isn't to say that women shouldn't be playing rugby or anything like that, but I think it'd be really interesting to see if we can actually alter the game to make it more beneficial to us in the long run when it comes to stuff like injuries. Um, it can also be something to consider that maybe ball size is too big. Um, the average woman's hands are smaller than men's and the size five balls are meant for men's hands. Um, while we can all play with size five balls, maybe it would mean to more interesting technique if women could hold the ball in one hand. And obviously we're not talking about individuals here because, you know, everyone's unique. I know I have massive hands. <laughs> um, but I think it could be really something to think about in the coming years as women's rugby progresses um, about how we can actually start adapting the sport to fit us rather than trying to fit around the sport. I think I think definitely it's um, something we, within the sport we need to understand how women are, are different when it comes to rugby and, and you're definitely right it is about making the game fit women as opposed to women fit the game at grassroots level and at university club level the funding depending on the university is so broad and different that the level of coaching or the level of fitness or the level of awareness around certain injuries or, or areas to improve on a will be very different you'll play one game against one club and they'll play a completely different style it all really depends on on where you are who the coaches are and i think if we understand how we can use the specific biomechanical and physiological advantages in some ways that women have specifically if we look at how depending on the menstrual cycle women are more protected against concussions than than men um uh, just just as an example from from one of the studies i mentioned earlier what this could mean similar to how the Chelsea Football Club are, are tailoring their training plans is it maybe it's worth considering having matches at different times maybe it's worth considering how we do the training how we structure our S&C sessions if during certain times in a, a menstrual cycle different joints are more lax then would it be sensible to prescribe a very intensive S&C session for, for that time there's so many different considerations there's so many different avenues that this this area and, and women's rugby and women's sport in general could could explore and i think now especially as we move into 2020 2021 it's the time where all of these new research and studies are coming out and people are taking a bigger focus to try and fit that statement as you said to make the game fit fit women yeah, um, I hope, if anything, this podcast has made people think a bit differently about women's rugby and how training plans should be structured and just different things to consider in your workouts. Obviously, yet again, we are not doctors or physios. Um, this is just based on the studies we've read. Uh, but basically, keep an eye out for studies in the future and let's hope they keep on progressing the women's game. Um, so, yeah, thank you for listening. Uh Please follow us on Instagram, which is L-U-U-W-R-U-F-C, or on our Twitter, which is L-U-U Women's Rugby, uh, where we'll keep updates about the podcast and just our general club life. 
Um, but yeah, thanks for watching and we hope you have a great day.